If you would, open up your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Find the Gospel of Matthew. Go back two books. Zechariah falls at the end of the Old Testament. Today, Lord willing, I will bring a message titled, From Rags to Riches. From Rags to Riches. And just to give you a summary of chapter 3, just a little summary statement. In chapter 3, Zechariah chapter 3, in this passage, Satan is going to bring Israel's sin before the Lord. And these sins are going to be pictured as filthy garments. And I want us to notice how God's holy character is never compromised as He remains faithful to His people. It's a beautiful gospel message in this Old Testament passage. Zechariah 3, we'll read 1 through 5. Then He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the Lord clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said to him, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with the garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Only five verses. You know, it's a step down from where we came in the previous message. But let me give you some building blocks to understand this passage. I always think it's, it's helpful if we can kind of place this passage in, in context chronologically and in this history of, of Israel. Zechariah is a post-exile prophet, and that means exactly what it says. He, he was a prophet after they had returned from their exile into Babylon. They have returned from Babylon to their land, and this is where he's prophesying. They've been into Babylon. They've been allowed to return to their land. King Cyrus is the one who had allowed them to return. You know, the Lord stirred up the heart of Cyrus. And it says Cyrus allows them to return. He allows them to rebuild their temple. And he even gives them gold and silver to assist them or to aid them in the rebuilding process. And actually, a fraction, only a fraction of the people return to Jerusalem. The majority of the people remain in Babylon. They had begun, began to be comfortable. They got their kids in schools and sports Activities. They just either way, they just stay in Babylon. They don't they don't go back to the land. But the few that do return, they actually spend more time working on their own homes, and very little time is spent working on the Lord's house. This is really captured in Haggai. Now, Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying exactly at the same time to the exact same people. Haggai says this, chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Eh, it's not a good time. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? They plenty of time to work on their own stuff. This wasn't a good time to do the Lord's work. 
They were allowed by King Cyrus, remember, to return. A few return. They go there to rebuild the temple. They're given the silver and gold to aid in their effort. And they take this money and they buy construction material for the temple. And that, that includes stone and a, and, a, and a list of stuff we read about in Ezra, including cedar. They bought cedars for the temple. But they don't use the material for temple construction because the Lord's house lies in ruins, according to Haggai. Instead, they use the material to build themselves paneled houses, cedar paneled houses. So you see, God had stirred the heart of Cyrus to send his people back, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city. He gave them provisions, he gave them protections, and they use it for their own benefit. Look, I didn't turn here to cast stones at these people. I turned here so that we can understand their heart. We see where their heart is. They're still rebellious. The Babylonian captivity didn't, didn't cure their wayward hearts. It's not like they were sitting in captivity and came back as, as just a, a holy people who learned their lesson, a chastened people. They didn't. They're still rebellious. And history proves this. If you fast forward and don't do it, but if you were to fast forward to the next book, chronologically and even in your Bible, it's the book of Malachi. And in Malachi, what are they doing? When they go to make offerings to the Lord, they're giving away the lame, the sick, all the defects, right? They're giving the Lord their scraps. They're even stating in Malachi, it is vain to serve the Lord. It's worthless. Worthless to serve God. You close the book of Malachi and you fast forward to the next book. We're in the Gospels. What do we read there? They kill their king. They kill their Messiah. They kill God in the flesh. They nail Him to a cross. And I, I do this background just to anchor in the fact that they are still sinners. By and large, they're God-hating, self-worshipping, self-righteous this is the group we read about here in Zechariah. They may have returned to the land, but their hearts are still estranged from God. You look in, ver in chapter 1 of Zechariah. Turn back one page. Just to show you, Ze Zechariah 1, verse 3. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, but they have returned. They're in the land, right? Well, I think he's talking about something way more than just a return to the land. They don't need a change of address. They need a change of heart. God is seeking more than a new zip code from them. That's spelled out in verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. The Lord is calling them to repentance. And He's going to give them these promises. And these promises will be realized when the people repent. When Israel repents. And you say, well, what were promises? Well, Zechariah is actually going to touch on a few of them. So let's, let's kind of jump into this book. He actually gets a series of eight visions. Eight visions comes to Zechariah all in one night. That's a restless night. All in one night. 
We get that from verse 8. It says, I saw in the night. So these are nighttime visions. And then he records these eight visions all in one night. We kind of base this off the fact that as we keep reading, like verse 18 in chapter 1, I lifted up my eyes and saw chapter 2, verse 1. And I lifted up my eyes and saw chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me. So you just get the feel as you're reading this book that he's lifting up his eyes and seeing this. He's seeing this and the angels grabbing him and showing him that. All this is happening in one night. There's no indication that these visions occur over some month-long or, or year-long process. Well, what are, the, what are these visions? We're not going to cover all eight. But the first vision is recorded. It says the Lord is going to return to Jerusalem. That's the first vision. That's the first promise. The Lord's going to return to Jerusalem. The second vision, the Lord is going to put an end to all the nations that oppress Israel. The third vision, Israel's going to be rebuilt. Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. We read this in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. Well, why no walls, you ask? Because of the multitude of the people and the livestock in it. This place is going to be busting. There's going to be people everywhere. It's going to be a, a, a happening place. We could actually fast forward in this book to chapter 8. And there we read in chapter, chapter 8, verse 23, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So you see, the Lord is going to return to Jerusalem. God is going to be with them. He's going to cast down all the nations that oppress them. Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. And Israel is going to be the light of the world. But yet, they're wicked. They're wicked. So how can God remain faithful to His promise? and yet not compromise his holy character. The fourth vision that we just read in chapter 3 illustrates this answer to us. From rags to riches. Let's kind of work through it. It says in the first verse of chapter 3, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So, then he showed me. Who's the he? Well, if you want to go back into chapter 1, we read in chapter 1, we read in verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9, just to kind of show you where we get this from. Then I, being Zechariah, said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. Look with me in verse 14. Of chapter 1. So the angel who talked with me, second vision, look in chapter 1, verse 19. So the angel who talked with me, we see it again. Chapter 2, verse 3, we see it again. The angel who talked with me came forward so that he showed me is going to be the angel who had been talking with Zechariah. The angel who had been talking with Zechariah showed him. Joshua, the high priest. Now, Joshua, the high priest, 
is going to represent Israel as a nation. And um, I'll just kind of spell this out for you. When the high priest would enter the holy place, he would, he would wear this specific garment. It was, um, he, he would just put, it would have these garments, it would have these two stones on their shoulders, and these two stones would represent the nation of Israel. He would wear this breastplate, and it would have the, the names of the twelve sons of Israel on the breastplate. He would wear that whenever he would enter the temple. And he would do that, it's called an ephod or an ephod. When he would wear this ephod, he, it would, he would do it representing, as a representative of the nation of Israel. So I, I think that's what's being taught here. Joshua the high priest here represents the nation of Israel. And this is, to me, going to be further confirmed by the Lord's defense to Satan's accusations. Satan is standing there, as it says at the end of verse 1, accusing him, accusing Joshua. And yet the Lord defends Jerusalem, Israel. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. So Satan there is accusing Joshua and the Lord is defending Israel. Why, you ask? Because Joshua represents Israel. Get it? That's what's being taught. Okay, we move on. Then we see, we see Joshua the high priest representing the nation of Israel standing before the angel of the Lord. This is going to be the pre-incarnate Christ. This is going to be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'll prove this when we get to verse 4. And it's Satan standing there. Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan the accuser, we read here. That's familiar with in Scripture. We read in Revelation 12 that the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them day and night before our God. This is pictured in the book of Job as well. As, Job, as Satan presents himself before the Lord and, and starts pointing out Job. And the only reason Job serves God is because God's so good to him. Take these things away from him. He'll curse you to your face. You know, this, this is Satan's mantra. This is what he does. Standing at the right hand, accusing him day and night. Accusing them of their sin, their wickedness, their iniquity. This, this is your people? The people who take your blessings and squander them? The things you give to them to do your work, they, intend, they instead do their work, build their kingdom. The people who ignore your word, the people who kill the prophets you send to warn them, this, this is your people. You know, the Gospels tell us in John 8 that Satan is a liar and he's a father of lies. So you have this great liar, the father of lies, Standing for, before God, only this time, he's not lying. He doesn't have to. Their trespasses are so many. Their sins are so grave that Joshua doesn't speak a single word. You will not see him speak in this passage. There's no defense. They're guilty and everyone knows it. 
But you see, Satan has the power to accuse, but not the power to condemn. Keep that in mind. So we have the nation, we have the Christ, and we have Satan, the accuser, all in this little setting. I hope you're getting interested in this. And then we see who speaks, verse 2, the Lord, Yahweh, says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Jesus. You know, I was was thinking about this. You know, because sometimes we have a friendly rebuke like we talked about in Sunday school. But you don't really get that feel here. To me, it reminds me of Jesus when he's in the boat with his disciples or out in the middle of the sea. He goes to sleep. Storm rises up, and they start really wigging out. They don't know what's going on, so they go wake him up. We're going to die. So he rises up, and he rebukes the wind. And then it's just silence. It's calm. It's serene. It's, that's enough. And that, when the Lord here rebukes Satan, you don't see a back and forth. We don't read about that. Satan will not speak another word in this passage. That was enough. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. I chose Jerusalem. The Lord, Yahweh, chose Jerusalem. Jerusalem being synonymous with Israel. That's caught in passages that Jesus would say things like, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her brood. But you were not willing. It's not just the city He's talking about. It's the nation. It's the people. The Lord had chosen Jerusalem. The Lord had chosen Israel. They are the apple of His eye. That's in chapter 2, verse 8. If you just want to look across the page there, He who touches you touches the apple of His eye. These are His people. That's why He rebukes Satan. Then He goes on and says, Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? You know, we actually went through Ezekiel, and I had this chapter, so it's a little more familiar to me. But in Ezekiel 15, there's a passage there where Jerusalem is referred to as a useless vine. And by that I mean vines, a vine's sole purpose is to produce fruit. You do not build houses out of vines. It has no strength. Its characteristics aren't there. right? So the sole purpose of a vine is to produce fruit. In Israel, this is back, you know, Ezekiel's back pre-exile. Israel, pre-exile, did not bear fruit. So the Lord said, what, what use are you? You're a useless vine. You're good for nothing but the fire. And there he says that he's going to throw them into the fire and they will be charred in the middle, burn on both ends and charred in the middle. Charred but not consumed. Because it seems to be what he's saying is this not a brand plucked from the fire, a vine plucked from the fire. If I was going to do away with Israel, would I pluck them from the fire? Would he have gathered them from the fire if he was going to do away with them? Look, they were being judged in Babylon for their sin. Yet he reached down and pulled them out, Right? Why? Because He chose them. He chose them. So let me just keep your mind back pre-exile. 
Ezekiel was pre-exile. This is where that useless vine uh, image come from. Also, Jeremiah is there preaching along the same time. And Jeremiah is in Jerusalem as it's being attacked. He's, he's witnessing some horrific things. He writes in Lamentations about it. You know, this, the people, as he looks in that siege, and their skin is sticking to their bones because of the lack of food. They're cooking and eating their children because things are so bad. He writes this in Lamentations. And I think this is amazing. Lamentations 3, verse 21. This is, this is Jeremiah during the most awful siege imaginable. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we are not cut off. We will not be consumed. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Jeremiah's hope was in God. He trusts in the character of God. And the character of God is one that does not change. And God had chosen Israel. And here they stand back in their land, charred but not consumed because God is faithful to His Word. They were a brand plucked from the fire. A charred vine, we could say. A nation that has returned from exile in Babylon is standing here before the Lord. And Satan's just hurling these accusations. But they have God as their defender. Even though... According to verse 3, Satan's accusations are actually accurate. We look in verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. This is a very descriptive verse. You get it. Joshua was standing there clothed with filthy garments. This word is only used here. But the, the, the root of this word is only used twice. And here's one of its uses. We'll catch this in Ezekiel 2. Ezekiel 4. This is the passage about Ezekiel's bread. Where Ezekiel's they gather up all these grains. And he has to make this dough. And he has to cook this dough on what is said human dung. That's the word we read here. So Joshua's standing here covered in dung. Filth excrement, feces, human waste. You get the point. You get the point. That's what he's standing there covered in. It don't matter how much you love somebody, that's disgusting. You even see parents, when their kid does that, they hold them, you know, it's, it's just different. I mean, it's just, it's repulsive language and it's, it's intended to be that way. Joshua's pictured standing before the Lord clothed in the most disgusting filth imaginable. Covered in filth, yet he is the apple. They are the apple of his eye. Chosen. They're chosen by God, yet covered in filth. I just thought about the riches of his grace. They're filthy, yet rich. They're filthy rich. I actually thought about titling that, but I didn't think I'd be able to make that connection. So, but a lot is coming at us here. So here we have Satan's accusations are true. They're accurate. However, the Lord 
Yahweh is their defender. So again, how can God be consistent with His character? By hating and punishing sin, yet remaining faithful to His promise? Verse 4, Then the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Here we go. The angel of the Lord speaks. I think it says the angel, but I think it's referring to the angel of the Lord here. Speaks, remove the filthy garments from him. Then he goes on and says, I've taken your iniquity away from you. So in case there was any question in your mind on what the filth represents, we're told here it represents your iniquity or their iniquity, their sin. And now it's been removed. So, I told you earlier that this angel of the Lord was the pre-incarnate Christ, and here's where I get this. Does a mere angel have the authority to remove sin? No. No. We're actually given several passages, but one of them is in Mark, where our Lord Jesus is standing there, and He heals a paralytic man. And He tells the paralytic man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes who were standing there questioned in their heart, why does this man speak like that? This is blasphemy. Who has the authority to forgive sins but God alone? They were right in that. They were wrong in who Jesus was. Jesus was God. He absolutely had the authority to do that. Not an angel. So when this angel is standing here saying, I have taken away your iniquity from you, this is a pre-incarnate Christ we're seeing here. So here we see Jesus the mediator standing between sinful man and a holy God. And he's saying, remove the filthy garments from them. Their sin has been removed. Their sin has been paid That, my friends, is our only justification before God. This is it. No lame excuses, no claims of ignorance. I didn't didn't know. Our only justification is in Christ and that He has removed our sins. He has removed them. Our iniquity has been removed. It's been taken away. And not only that, And I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's something, isn't it? You know, the New Testament teaches on this, and it teaches that this great exchange happened at Calvary. It happened at the cross, right? What it says here, or the the believers, their, their filthy garments are taken off of them, removed, and His pure vestments are placed on them. We see this exchange happen at the cross, His filthy garments removed, placed on Christ. Christ's pure vestments are placed on Him. We just read this in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, He, God, made Him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. His righteousness was grafted or given to us, imputed to us, and our sinfulness was imputed to Him. That's what we see here. 
But look, there's one more little nuance here. Two times so far we've been reading filthy garments. Filthy garments. He stood there clothed in filth. And then we read on that remove the filthy garments from him. And actually down in verse 5, it says he will be clothed in garments. Now look, the word garments is clothing of any kind. From the filthy clothing of the leper to the holy robes of the high priest, the simplest covering of the poor, as well as the costly raiment of the rich and noble. So this garments just really specifically refers to clothing. Now this clothing had been covered in sin. It's filthy. It's disgusting. But here it doesn't say, it says what? They will clothe him in pure vestments. It doesn't say pure garments. Oddly enough, this word is used only two times as well. It's used here and it's used in Isaiah. In Isaiah, it refers to festal clothes. That's probably why if you have a New American Standard or a Legacy Bible, it reads here that I will clothe you in festive clothing. Celebratory clothing. Not just a clean shirt. Celebratory clothing. The Septuagint that, uh, again, Blake brought out this morning, is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Septuagint actually has the same word here in Zechariah that it has in Luke 15 referring to the prodigal son. You know the prodigal son, you know he had went out, he had squandered his, his savings, and he's living among the pigs and the, all that stuff. And then it says he came to his own. He started, you know, it seems like he repented and he goes back to his father and his father runs to meet him. And we read there, his father says in Luke 15, bring quickly the best robe. Bring the pure vestments, we could say. And put, on, and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. These are celebratory clothes. For my son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. This is what's happening. They're removing these filthy garments from him and he's putting on these celebratory clothes. So where, where do we go from here? Verse 5. It seems like Zechariah is just so excited. He actually entered, he enters the exchange here. Satan has quit talking. Joshua never said a word. But here, Zechariah is going to chime in. I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. The angel of the Lord was standing by approving this. But let him put a, a, a clean turban. It seemed like the turban was, was intentionally left out. It was intentionally left off. And Zechariah, being a priest, because Zechariah is a priest and a prophet, he intercedes for the people. Let them put a clean turban on his head. I think Zechariah's desire here, because a turban is something that the, the priest would wear, and I think Zechariah's desire here is for the nation not only to be cleansed, but to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I think Zechariah's desire is for them to be a nation that brings people to the Lord. His desire is for them to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. And God grants this request and places this priestly turban on his head. So what we're seeing here is, is the nation of Israel is going to be 
cleansed. They're going to, they're going to be cleansed and they're going to be given this celebratory clothes and they're actually going to have this turban put on their head where they're going to be a, a priest. They're going to, just like we read in chapter 8, the Gentiles, the people, the nations are going to grab a hold to a Jew and say, take me with you for God is with you. This is where we're going to get to. All these promises we're reading from the fact that God will be dwell in Jerusalem, God will be with them, God will put down the nations, Jerusalem will be rebuilt, and the nation will be cleansed. These are promises. These are not best intentions. And yet we woke up Saturday morning with Israel being under attack. I don't want to downplay that, but that's just been the par for the course for the nation of Israel. They've been attacked and hated from their inception. Nothing new to Israel. But according to the second vision, in that day, the Lord is going to put down the nations that rise up against Israel. Okay? There is coming a day. You just watch and see what the Lord is going to do. And know if He keeps His promise to them, we can have confidence in the promises He made to us. Okay? If He forfeited His promise to them, what confidence do we have? You know the promise of, I go to prepare a place for you, and so where I am, you may be also. If I do prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Is that a promise we cling to? We should, because God keeps His word. So we're reading about these promises and we're awaiting this national revival. But when? Look, everything we've been reading from chapter 1 is what the Lord is going to do. He's going to return. He's going to be with them. He's going to put down the nations. He's going to rebuild Jerusalem. He's going to cleanse them. All this He's going to do. But what was one of the first things we read? Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. Repent. Repent. This, this, all these promises hinge on Israel repenting. And they will one day. Zechariah covers that too. Zechariah says a lot in this book. By the way, Todd does plan on preaching Zechariah after 2 Corinthians. So he can fix this when he gets there. But in Zechariah 12, if you would flip over there to it. Zechariah 12. It's a, we read in verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and a plea for mercy, so that when they look on me whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So they will look upon me. This is the Lord Yahweh speaking, and He says they will look upon me. Well, who who did they pierce? Christ. The second man in the Trinity, right? So Jesus is God. They will look upon me whom they've pierced and they'll mourn. They'll repent that they killed their king, they killed their Messiah, they killed their Savior. They'll weep as one would weep as an only child, an only son is gone. And then we see in chapter 13, And on that day they shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Look, they will repent. And when they do, they will be cleansed. 
These filthy garments will be removed and festive robes will be placed on them and a celebration will ensue. So what does this passage have to teach a Gentile New Covenant believer? Aside from the fact that we're grafted into those promises, not, not making light of that, but here's some things we could take home that Satan is a real adversary. He accuses the brothers day and night, according to Revelation. Remember now, Satan accuses, but he cannot condemn. So don't let that rob you of your joys. You're just kind of marred in your guilt. Don't let that rob you of your joy. Your sins have been paid. Kind of reminds me of, of a, a story of Martin Luther. Martin Luther had this uh, imaginative back and forth with Satan, and Satan's just going on and on and on about all the transgression, transgression upon transgression, sin upon sin. Look what you've done. Look who you are. I can't... Just on and on and on. And Luther had finally had enough. He said, it's all true, Satan, and much, much more. Many more sins I've committed in my life which are known only to God. But you're right at the bottom of that list. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Make the list as long as you want. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. You don't have to be clean as you stand before God, You're covered in filth. You know, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us, right? So Jesus has paid for our sins, and if He's paid for our sins, according to Romans, we read there, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Who are you to, to condemn? The one whom God justifies. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. One more thing. Let us not make light of our sins. How does God view our sins according to this passage? Filth. Filth. So why do we minimize sin? We do it all the time. Even from the little white lie. Just a little white lie, right? Even in some cases, we, we approve of the grossest of sins. You can look at some of the most egregious sins, the most wicked lifestyles, and actually see people give them a stamp of approval. And you need to understand that as long as people believe that God tolerates sin, they will never repent. And don't just point the finger. God hates pride. God hates a lying tongue. God hates a heart that covets. So on our own, we're not standing before God spotless. On our own. We too must repent. Our sin and our filth removed and His righteousness placed on us from filthy rags to riches of His grace, all accomplished by the work of the Savior. There's just a beautiful, to me, just a beautiful gospel message in this Old Testament book of Zechariah. If you would please stand.